Hi, this is Bob Piler of the Bankruptcy Law Success Podcast, where we introduce you to successful bankruptcy lawyers, as well as powerful ideas that can transform your bankruptcy practice. Today, I'm speaking with Jake Parent, who currently is the head of sales at Fresh Start Funding in Tempe, Arizona. Jake, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Bob. Appreciate the uh, invitation. So, wait, first, did I get that right? Is that your title, head of sales at Fresh Start Funding? Yeah, I'm the director of sales and marketing here. Okay, awesome. So, Jake, I've actually been very eager to get you on the podcast ever since we were talking the other day. And you mentioned that in your last job before Fresh Start Funding, you used to work for, uh, well, why don't you describe the kind of company that you used to work for? I worked for a business services provider that provided, you know, business services, the back-end businesses services to a law firm. So we did their marketing, we handled their calls, we handled their business operations, but we didn't do any of the practice of law. So anytime an attorney was talking to a client, the attorney was responsible for that, but any of the other business operations, the marketing and the logistics, we handled that part of it for them. Uh-huh. And was that a law firm that primarily did bankruptcy law or? Yeah, we only we only worked with bankruptcy attorneys. So we worked with four or five different bankruptcy attorneys in different metros. So we had them here in Phoenix, Las Vegas, Utah, Colorado. We work with different attorneys in, in different areas to help streamline their practice so that they could do what they did best, which was the practice of law. And then we focused on the business operation side of it. My understanding is that you were doing sales where you were helping to get prospects to retain. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's one of the things that we would help them with is because we were, we looked at this as a business that we did all the marketing, we did all the online marketing, the scheduling of appointments, and then we would work with the attorneys to make sure that they were getting the best retention rates possible in the clients that they were meeting with. Mm -hmm. So we would go in there and give them, you know, basically sales support, sales assistance, sales training on how they could provide the best consults to their clients to get the best outcomes for everybody involved. Yeah. So the stat that you told me that blew me away was that for every 100 sales appointments that you did, you would close, it, was a, it sounded like a huge number to me. So for every 100 sales appointments, how many would you close? For every 100 consults that we had, we generally retained about 80. On a week-to-week basis, it would vary, but 80% was usually the number that we were looking for. Some weeks, it would be a little bit higher because you have clients who come in that just aren't, Chapter 7 isn't going to be a solution for them. Either they have IRS debts or student loan debts, and they really don't have any other debts. And it's like, well, that's that's certainly an insurmountable amount of debt in your situation. But unfortunately, Chapter 7 is not going to be the solution for that. Mm. So outside of those parameters, we generally were closing between 70 to 80%, with 80% being the number that we're always striving for and hit fairly often. Okay, but some portion of them, about like what percentage of people were kind of ineligible for Chapter 7? It would vary probably 25 to 15% on a week-to-week basis, which is normally how we looked at the numbers. It's like, hey, you met with this many people this week, here's where we fall. Mm -hmm. So I've never really looked at it over a yearly basis or a really large number basis, but that's kind of the where the numbers are flowing between between those two. Occasionally you just you have other people that come in where this may be the greatest financial hardship that they've ever faced in their life and it's still 
you could file a bankruptcy for them, but it's like you're you're going to pay more for this bankruptcy than you're going to get in relief and debt, and it just doesn't make sense. So you have to provide them different options or different avenues, and and maybe you can guide them along and you know, on that path. But I've certainly occasionally have people come in that that have less debt than the cost of a bankruptcy, and it's like, well, that's that's not going to work out for you long term. Let's find something else. <laughs> sure. So the eighty percent close rate that was for a mm-hmm. it's for a zero down chapter seven is that right? Correct. That's a zero down bankruptcy that has an eighty percent retention rate. If we were doing where the client had what we called a layaway program, where they they had to pay somewhere between a hundred to three hundred dollars down, and then they would make payments to us, and then we wouldn't file them until they paid in full. The retention rate on that varied between 65 and like 75 percent mm-hmm. over long terms, but that 65 to 75 percent also gets spread out, meaning that you'll meet with somebody on Tuesday and they'll say, yes, I want to retain you, but it's going to be a week and a half before I get paid, before I can give you the $100. Mm-hmm. So it's never as clean and it usually has a little bit more work in trying to get them to retain and that you're having to do more follow-up to get them on board. And then again, you have to do more follow-up to collect all the payments. Mm-hmm. Plus, I would imagine that some portion of those people that start the layaway plan just don't finish it. I mean, that's... Is that something that you saw too? Yeah, it's it's something we saw. I never had really good, it, it, well, it's, it's hard to quantify because some of those layaway programs take so long that clients will ghost you. So you'll have ghost files where somebody is was really consistent, made payments for six months, and then just disappears. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't, they don't answer their emails, their phone's turned off and they don't make any payments and they disappear for a year. And then they call back a year later and go, all right, I'm ready to file a bankruptcy. Let me give you some more money. <laughs> and then I think the longest payment plan that I saw was a little bit over four years where the guy was a serial ghoster and that he would make payments for a while and be nice and steady and then disappear for a while and come back. But we also had people that asked for refunds years after they had stopped making payments mm-hmm. and had never gotten all the way through. And then the attorney has to do ca- accounting. We have to figure out how many creditor calls we've taken. Mm-hmm. Everybody has to document how much work they've done to determine how much of a refund he's owed. Yeah, huge pain. Uh, yeah. Okay, so I'm really grateful because you're, you're coming here and you're going to tell us exactly how someone can close 80% of their sales appointments and turn them if they're selling a, a zero down chapter seven. Correct. So I'm very excited about that. Before we go into that, can you pull up and take a step back and tell us what your sales process was? So maybe we can start with somebody calling into your old firm. So who would, who would pick up the phone? How was that handled? We had a small phone room full of customer service reps. They would answer the phone. We trained them the best as possible to be as empathetic as they could with the clients. They had a series of questions they would go through just to make sure that they were minimally qualified for bankruptcy. You don't want to overqualify them when they call so that that it lowers your appointment setting, but you want to make sure that they indeed do have debt, what kind of debt it has, and just 
kind of, hey, what's what's going on in your situation? What made you call today? Mm-hmm. And then we would schedule an appointment with the appropriate attorney as soon as possible. If we could get them scheduled the same day, that would be great. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, either based on the debtor's issue or the attorney's calendar, it might be two or three days before we could get them in. Mm-hmm. The empathy is really a big part in that you don't want to tell them it's okay, but you do want to tell them that you understand and that that you're there to help, and and we're going to get you the relief that you need when they've when they've told you about their situation. Mm-hmm. And I think I understand where you're coming from. I think you're saying you don't want to make them feel so relieved that they don't finish the bankruptcy process. Correct. So there's two ends of that spectrum. The first end of the spectrum, and it's as true for the attorneys and for me and for everybody else involved in the process, in that the debtor who's calling us, this is this is pretty close to one of the worst days of their life. That they're in financial hardship, they've overcome the social stigma of bankruptcy, and they're finally willing to reach out to somebody and say, I need help, mm-hmm. I need this to stop. And they're going through a fair amount of distress. So on our end, to me, this is just a Thursday. <laughs> like I've I've taken 50 calls today from people who are as broke or broker than you. This is not a big deal. Mm-hmm. And to us, it's unfortunately not a big deal. It's like it is literally a Thursday uh-huh. where I've talked to 50 bankrupt people. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately for that person on the other end, hopefully not always, this is the only time in their life they've had to make that call mm-hmm. and say that I, I need assistance, I need help. So we need to balance the empathy of understanding their situation without trying to let them out of their situation that you called us for a reason, you do need relief, you do need support, but it is really easy for people to use that initial phone call as almost kind of like a psychology counselor session mm-hmm. in which they're going to vent all their problems and then they go, all right, I feel all better now. I don't, <laughs> I don't need to come in. Yeah. And it's like, well, when you wake up tomorrow, those creditors are still going to be calling you. So you need to co- go ahead and come in. So we are trying to balance those two ends of the spectrum of being understanding without giving them complete and total relief just on the phone call. Yeah. Okay. So someone picks up the phone in your phone room and they set an appointment. Mm-hmm. You said they set an appointment with an attorney, but I mean, at what point would you get involved in this process? Would they ever set an appointment directly with you? By and large, they would not set up an appointment with me directly in in all situations. The ideal scenario is that they they do meet with an an attorney. I'm a paralegal. I have a degree as a paralegal. I've done some work as that, but the majority of my professional experience is in sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. So I usually work with the attorneys on coaching them through doing best consultations. But there are other times where an attorney, he's got other meetings, he's got other appointments, he's out of town, and you don't want the cash register to stop just because the person who's doing the intakes has left the office for the day. Mm -hmm. So if we, we were doing fairly high volume and that most of our attorneys did anywhere from 30 to 50 cases per month. Mm-hmm. So they were meeting with quite a few people. So if they weren't available, they needed to have somebody else that was available to meet with the client initially to walk them through the process, make sure that bankruptcy was going to be a good fit for them and get them started. Mm-hmm. And that's where you got involved. And that's, that's where I would come in. So it wasn't my full-time job to meet with clients. But if an attorney wasn't available or an attorney was on vacation, if you're filing 40 or 50 cases a month, you're doing pretty well and you can afford to take a month off. Mm -hmm. So we have an attorney that would go, hey, I'm going to Italy for a month. (laughs) It's like, 
right, well, we're not going to shut the practice down for a month. So we're, we're going to do the consults and retain other outsourced other attorneys to do 341s and some of the other, other issues that need to be taken care of while he was gone. Oh, wow. Okay. So they would pick up the phone and they would do the first appointment. Uh, was that first appointment, if it was with the attorney, would that be in person? And if it was with you, it would be over the phone or how would that work? We always tried to schedule the appointments in person mm-hmm. that the in, in person. So when I give you an 80% number, that is assuming that we are meeting in the office with that client. Mm-hmm. There are clients that we would do consults with over the phone. Mm-hmm. Usually it was, they were bedridden. They had transportation issues where they couldn't get to the office or in some of the locations, Arizona's are a really big one that there are there's some really remote areas of Arizona where even though we had three or four different offices throughout the state, that person may be an hour and a half away from our nearest office. Yeah. So we would we would go ahead and meet with them over the phone. The retention rate by phone was usually closer to 50%. Oh, really? Yeah, it was not ideal that uh, the CSRs had to justify why they had set up a phone consult instead of having them come meet us in person. Mm-hmm. And the no-show rate is, again, I don't have specific numbers, but the no-show rates on phone consults were incredibly high to the point that we had a limited minute window of when we allowed phone consults. Mm-hmm. And then when we had phone consults, we would double book all of them because we just figured they weren't going to show. Really? Yeah. I have an attorney who just started using Ruby receptionist to set calls. Mm -hmm. And we were just looking at some sets and seven out of eight showed up for their phone appointments. Really? I generated the leads with Google AdWords. Maybe that was a difference Mm -hmm. for that particular client. He does do phone appointments. I don't know. No, that's, that's really good. It's outstanding. The more bankruptcy attorneys I talk to and I see the different, how they organize things, like every once in a while, like when it comes to, to scheduling consults that, you know, I'll talk to one attorney and it's like he legitimately schedules 90% of the people that call his office schedule a consult Mm -hmm. and another attorney who is is only scheduling appointments with 70% of the people that call his office. Mm -hmm. And I'm always curious as to like how they, like it's different. It's difficult to quantify all of the variables, Mm -hmm. but it's like, all right, is his staff that much better? Is his advertising different? Are the people that, that are calling, are the words on the website so different that it, it qualifies them better? Like what is going in on that process? That's, you know, from a marketing point of view, the difference, this, this, the difference in a thing between 70 and 90 is, is enormous. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm always curious as to like why those things happen, but I don't necessarily always have good reasons, but that's an outstanding result. That is, yeah. that's awesome. I wish I could have done that. <laughs> well, I do have an opinion that I can't justify it, but I've listened to several thousand bankruptcy phone calls. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I haven't listened to them all, but I've listened to hundreds of them. Right. And the biggest thing is that bankruptcy lawyers forget that when a prospect calls with a question, whatever that question is, that's often the only way that they know how to talk about bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or taking a step back, they'll have a very specific question. And if you answer that question, it re- alleviates all pressure on them to take another step. Mm-hmm. So they'll be like, if someone sues me for a debt, what's going to happen? So if you answer that question, they're not going to set the appointment. All the imp- You're taking all the wins out of their sales in terms of them 
trying to take the next step. And really what you need to do is you need to push them to take the next step, next step. And almost always, in my opinion, you should give kind of a high level answer, then always say, but it always depends on your particular situation. Let's get you in here. You can tell me what situation you're facing and I can give you a more detailed answer. Right. What do, what do you think about that? No, that's, that sounds outstanding. I mean, now that you now that you put it that way, that is an issue that our customer service reps would face where they would ask them a specific legal question and they would say, that's a really good question and you would have to speak to an attorney to, to get the answer to that. Let's, let's get you scheduled. Uh-huh. And if people pushed on it, the ultimate fallback was that's legitimately is starting to become the practice of law, which makes it <laughs> illegal for me to answer that question. And I, I mean, I'd, yeah. I would love to answer that question, yeah. but the attorney would need to give you the answer to that. Yeah. And and I would have the same, just to like cover my own bases, I would have the same issues when I was doing an intake with somebody mm-hmm. that there were certain specific scenarios that as soon as they said something, I'd be like, well, this call is over. I have to go get an attorney now. I, I can't answer your questions anymore. Like I, this is becoming the practice of law and I can't advise you on that. Mm-hmm. So like a really common one is if their income was too high and they, they didn't qualify for a chapter seven, I, I could literally only do chapter seven consults that as soon as it became a chapter 13 consultation, I was like, well, Mm-hmm. It's been nice talking to you. I've, I've enjoyed <laughs> meeting you. I, I have to get an attorney now. Sure. Is that true? Even if like they were just a little bit above the means test, they could probably do a budget and get back under? If they could do a budget and get back under, I would tell them that. But I would also tell them that I couldn't tell them the answer to that, that the attorney would do that with them and that I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the drawbacks of having me do the intake is I I couldn't do the math with them and go, where are you at? And, and how much are you spending? And mm-hmm. go go through. Even if I did know the math, I, I couldn't do that with them. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I want to get into the sales call itself. But before we did do that, I just have to ask, where did you learn the importance of knowing your numbers? Because I was trying to think about this before this we recorded this podcast. And I think you're only one of two people that I've met in the bankruptcy industry that really measures all their actions and knows the, knows their numbers with with anything more than just a vague. <laughs> I mean, you know them very on a granular level. That's not something I've seen. Where did you learn that? Mm-hmm. I mean, it it really boils down to business practices coming from a sales background that that I, I literally got out of college, went to work for a legal publisher as an out, as an inside sales rep for a legal publisher, then got promoted to outside sales rep for a legal publisher, and then just kept going down the sales and, and marketing route, got into technology, and always trying to figure out as a basic sales guy, it's like, all right, how many cold calls do I have to make to get get an attorney on the phone? How many attorneys do I have to talk to to get an appointment? How many appointments do I have to get to make a sale? So that like when you get up in the morning and you go to put your hard hat on and you're picking up that phone to make cold calls, you know how many you have to make that day in order to hit your numbers. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you start to experiment with different techniques. Hey, I've read this book and this guy says this works. All right, let me, Mm -hmm. let me try that and see if it actually changes the numbers. And then in the mid nineties, I started selling technology. Like I, I was selling website development in 1996 when the most common objection I got from people when I would call them about setting up a website was like, why would I want one of those for my company? So like the difference between 96 and 99, when people were like, why would I even bother talking to you? Like 99, they're like, hey, uh, how much money do I have to throw at you to build me a website Uh, was was pretty awesome. But then that's really where I learned the granular nature of marketing response and the different metrics and walking people through the sales funnel and, and knowing the metric for each step of the process. I think Google was 2001, 2002. And then, you know, we started with SEO and and AdWords and like the difference between a 1.5% response rate and a 2.1% response rate on, on a general ad was like, you know, we're taking off our shirt and running around the office doing the horsey dance because we, we moved the needle. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, that's really where I got that from. It's like, kind of like, Hey, let's, let's measure what we're doing. And if you don't know the score, you can't improve the score. So we're about to talk about a sales process and an outline of a sales script. But would you say before you do that, the bankruptcy lawyers out there listening need to use a CRM and, and start recording all these, logging all these phone calls and what and next steps in order to know their numbers? Or what would you say? Yes, if they're looking at it as a business person and they want to improve. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you want to lose weight, you get on the scale every day and look at the number. Okay. If they're just a, a pig in mud and they're happy with what they're doing and everything's growing great in their life and they don't want to change anything, mm-hmm. hey, uh, you know, don't change anything. Keep sure. keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> sure. But if you're looking around going, I think life could be better than this, that's certainly one of the big first steps to take. And it does take a fair amount of sitting down and thinking about what you're doing, how you're doing it. And the process, uh, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, and Joe Polish is one of the big marketing gurus nationwide, but he happens to be here in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. We've met a couple of times. And his big mantra is, what is the conversation that's already going on in your client's mind? And how do you how do you join it? How do you join that conversation? Absolutely. And, And it's one of those things that we always talk about what's important to us not realizing that like what's important to us isn't important to the person that we're trying to do business with. Mm-hmm. And what is it that they're going through? When, when I take you through this process, it, it'll kind of highlight the differences between the way that I've seen attor- attorneys normally do it mm-hmm. uh, versus this approach. Okay, so let's dive right in. So okay. maybe you can start by giving us a rough outline of your sales pitch or you could just do the first section, whichever you prefer. Okay, I'm going to do one other thing first, just to have a compare and contrast. Okay, which is most of the attorneys that when I, if, you know, attorney calls me up and says, "Hey, I I need help with my practice. Will you come in and take a look?" Okay, step one, sit down with their receptionist. Step two, sit down with them while they're dealing with the client. And what I see from attorneys by and large is that when they are talking to clients or when they're doing an intake with a client or not discovery, but in in sales it would be discovery, and in in legalese it's not discovery. But when they're having that investigative 
conversation with them, they're trying to figure out how to come up with the best legal answer. And they're framing it in legal terms like they have to answer to a law professor about, I came up with the right legal answer. Mm-hmm. So when they, they're talking to a client, they're just looking for what is the best legal answer. And it doesn't really answer most of the client's questions that it answers the attorney's questions, but it doesn't answer the client's. Mm-hmm. So this is a fairly client-focused intake consultation that we're going to walk them through. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I do when I walk in obviously introduce myself. Hi, I'm Jake. I'm a paralegal. The attorney's out today. I'm going to be meeting with you. I've been doing this for five years. I've been a paralegal for 20 years. I have expensive experience in the bankruptcy industry. So you're in good hands. I'd like to thank you for coming in today. I realize how difficult this was for you to come here today. I know that nobody is happy about having to file bankruptcy. So I appreciate what you're going through and how difficult it was for you to drive down here. And I appreciate that. The next step is I'm going to walk you through what is going to happen today. What's going to happen in our meeting is that I'm going to ask you what your situation is, how you're dealing with your debts, how it's affecting you. And then I'm going to explain the different types of bankruptcies that are available. I'm going to explain what we offer as a service. And then I'm going to go through your financial situation with you in detail. And then after we go through your financial situation in detail, I'm going to let you know whether bankruptcy is actually a good solution for you or not. 20% of the people that I meet with, bankruptcy is not a good solution for them. I'll tell you that. And then we'll try and find if there are any other solutions available to you and what could happen there. Then I'll go through what services we're going to provide you and how much those cost and what the best solution for you will be in providing for those services, okay? Okay. Let's just stop right there. Sure thing. So I've done sales for years, so I can clearly see what you're doing, which is you're taking control of the conversation. So certainly at this point, you're not going to have a two-hour consultation where someone's talking about how his ex-wife screwed him or some long story. You're taking... <laughs> you're taking well, you've you've certainly heard that, right? I have taken some ear beatings in my time from people who have been done wrong, yes. Yeah. So you're mapping out how this is going to go. And, and from a sales perspective, not only are you setting expectations, but you're also kind of being the alpha in that scenario and saying, mm-hmm. this is how it's going to be. And does that make sense? Are you cool with it? And you're getting their buy-in. So they can't be like 30 minutes or 20 minutes in, they can't be like, oh, this is not what I expected. You're, you you explain that up front and you get their buy-in for the rest of the pitch, which correct is a great thing. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the first thing I'm doing is recognizing how much pain that they're in so that like emotionally we're on the same wavelength. Like, mm-hmm. hey, this is an open, safe place. I realize how difficult this is. And the second thing I'm doing is I'm framing the conversation. And at the end of that, when I tell them that 20% of the people don't qualify, I'm doing a pre-takeaway and also taking the pressure off of them of feeling like they're being sold by somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in the, in this scenario, like I'm legitimately not trying to sell someone a bankruptcy if it's not going to fix their situation. Mm-hmm. I don't know how somebody would sleep with that, but it's doing a lot of things in that it does like, hey, I'm in charge. And I'm in charge because I know where we're going. Mm -hmm. I know what's happening. I know what's going on. I'm going to walk you through this process and that I do this entire thing in 30 minutes. You know, I know every time this is going to take me between 25 and 30 minutes. Sure. Unless we get to one question where they're like, they they tell me they've got, you know, $100,000 cash laying around somewhere. I'm like, well, 
you know, this, this isn't going to be a good solution for you. Like, yeah. you, you have too much money. Go, go pay your debt. Yeah. They just disqualify themselves. That's, that's how long it takes. So it gives them comfort and allows them to relax. Mm-hmm. That they don't, they don't have to be uptight worrying about what happens next because they know exactly what's going to happen next. Yeah. And the one of the things that I just want to say, not to you, Jake, but to the bankruptcy attorneys out there listening, is that when you take the job of sales seriously, you're really helping people make the right, the best decision for them. And by using this uh, approach that Jake is outlining or approach that's similar to it, you're really, it's about making the prospect feel comfortable talking to you and coming to a meeting of the minds. You're understanding their problems and you're applying Mm -hmm. their solutions and, and introducing those solutions to the prospect. And the prospect feels like they're in good hands. And it's a lot better for their prospect to take, I think, an explicit sales-centric approach, which is a prospect-centric approach, mm-hmm. than to take a, a self-centered, a lawyer-centered approach and and maybe give legal answers that don't really talk to their problem and, and mitigate their concerns. I mean, are we on the same page there? Yeah, we are. We are. Okay. And there certainly are times that it's appropriate where somebody needs to give them, hey, you've, you've got a choice here to make legally. I, I wouldn't be the person to have that conversation with them. So I, I never really had to worry about that. Sure. But there are times where that happens. But one of the examples I use is if your doctor came into you and said, hey, you can take propolophilol and it's, it's got this side effect, this side effect, this side effect, but it'll give you this benefit. Or you can take Zolalafafaf <laughs> and it's going to have these different side effects and this different benefit. Which one do you think you should take? You'd look at the doctor and go, what the heck, man? I'm not the doctor. Like, yeah. give me a prescription and get me out of here. Uh-huh. So that is, I, I don't think I said it this time, but one of the phrases that I would use is when we get to the end, either you will know you need a bankruptcy or I will know you don't. Okay, that's a good one. And both of those are okay. Like it's going to be clear cut when we get to the end of this conversation, what your best solution is going to be. Mm-hmm. It didn't bother me at all. Like I never got to the end and said, what do you think? Mm-hmm. I got to the end and said, you need a chapter seven bankruptcy. Or I got to the end and said, you don't need a chapter seven bankruptcy. Yeah. The other things I would see attorneys do all the time is they get to the end that, that they would explain bankruptcy in detail from a legal point of view and then get to the end and go, what do you think? Yeah. It's like, well, they still don't know what to think. They're not, they're not attorneys. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So at this point, are you ready for the next section or is there anything else that you want to mention? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for the next section. Okay, great. So the, the next thing that I would do is I would say, okay, Bob, nobody shows up at my office because they've missed one credit card payment mm-hmm. and they're feeling a little financially shaky. So they want to talk to a bankruptcy attorney. <laughs> something happened six months ago. Something happened a year ago. Something happened 18 months ago, maybe even longer. Uh-huh. And it's kind of snowballed out of control on you. And it brought you here today. Uh-huh. What happened? Great. That's a great question. So that that gives usually it's it what it's what gives me a thirty thousand foot overview of their financial situation, which is information that I need. Mm-hmm. But it also creates an emotional tension in them mm-hmm. that that you had talked about earlier, and that I'm 
emotionally, this conversation is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse for them until the very end. And the only way they get relief is if they they file bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just put my cards on the table and say that I think bankruptcy is a great solution mm-hmm. for a lot of people mm-hmm. in a lot of situations. As you've intimated, it's not always the best solution. Correct. But I feel like bankruptcy is a great solution for a lot of people. So mm-hmm. I think where you're, where, you're, where you're going here is this idea that if you can identify that bankruptcy is the right solution, you actually want them to kind of dwell in the pain that they're experiencing to encourage them to take action to take the next step. Correct. The pain of inaction needs to be greater than the pain of going through a bankruptcy because that's the first thing I've, I told them is I realize the pain of a bankruptcy is difficult. Mm-hmm. There's a social stigma. There's shame involved. People don't want to do it. I'm not trying to twist someone's emotions into buying a new car. It's mm-hmm. it's are, are you facing real financial hardship. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're not facing real financial hardship, it's like, hey, you know, we, we need to have that honesty and integrity that we say, this isn't a good solution for you. Mm-hmm. That I'm not trying to get them to do something that's not in their best interest, but I am trying to get them to see a very stark contrast between where they are now and where they'll be after bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned before that you do sales trainings with attorneys. Have you had attorneys that that have difficulty with this part, the kind of the dwelling in the pain part? Because I have. People in general seem to have a problem with this. And I'm working with an attorney currently who I tease him that if we were watching a scary movie, every time there was about to be a scare scene, he would tell everybody it's coming. (laughs) Like that's like, Hey man, you're, you're stepping on a movie. A story creates emotional tension that has a payoff at the end. Mm -hmm. And if you are not letting that emotional tension build, then there's no payoff at the end. Mm -hmm. You've, you've stepped on the lead. You've ruined what's coming next. That if someone blurts out the the punchline in the middle of the joke, like nobody likes that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be that guy. I would say the biggest struggle that I have with attorneys and I tease them about this, like I'll write an email and say, Hey, this is a sales email that we should send out. And they rewrite it. And I'm like, well, I understand you corrected my grammar, (laughs) which it's a downfall. I grew up in Arkansas, so I I don't have great grammar, (laughs) but you also took out all of the emotion and I will take the Pepsi challenge split test every day that we send these emails out to two different groups of people. And your perfectly worded, perfect grammar email is not going to sell as well as this one with the mistakes in it. And that's something that Robert Kiyosaki talks about is he was being interviewed by a journalist and the journalist was kind of like tutting him and and looking down at him because the journalist was saying, I'm a better writer than you. Uh And Robert shook his head and said, yeah, you, you are, I'm a best selling author. Uh You're a best writing author. (laughs) So that's one of the conversations that I have with attorneys is, do you want to be a best selling writer? are a best writing writer. Because if you just want to do best writing, I can't help you. Sure. That's not what we're focusing on here, that if you want the the accolades of your peers and other attorneys, that if you care what they think about you more than what you care that your clients think about you, it's going to be difficult to have extreme financial success at this. Mm-hmm. Because what other the other people who aren't paying you, you care about what they think more. Sure. Of course, it's my experience and the emails that you know that attorney is writing is, is sending to clients or prospects, they're not getting forward to the state bar or to other attorneys. So it's like they're worried about nothing, you know. But right, 
Well, the other thing is it's, and, and we all do it. We care about what our peer group thinks about us, not necessarily what our clients think about us, uh-huh. that the number of blog posts that I've seen written on attorneys' websites that are clearly written for other attorneys. Yes. Personal horror story of mine that I spent eight hours rewriting a blog post with a thesaurus because I, I needed to take all the big words out. Uh-huh. Like, hey, you you wrote this at a collegiate level, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to rewrite this for a third or a fifth grade level mm-hmm. because that's where we have the best sales responses at, as at that level. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at this point, you've started building the emotional tension, but maybe you could walk us through what, what happens next. Sure. So I ask them what happened. Usually takes them anywhere from 30 seconds to five to seven minutes to get their story out of their particular tale of woe and hardship. Mm -hmm. And then they are usually pretty hard luck cases. Every once in a while you look at someone and go, hey man, you're just not making good choices. But most of the time they got dealt a bad hand of cards and they're they're trying to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So once they get done telling me that. Well, actually, before they finish getting done, Mm -hmm. how are you expressing empathy with their situation as they tell the story? Just being present, being engaged. Mm -hmm. I almost never interrupt. I don't really ask for clarifications. I'm just assuming that they're going to walk me through. If there's plot holes, I'm not going back and asking them questions on the the plot holes of their story. Sure. Just being 100% engaged, 100% present. Sometimes I'm taking notes, but usually it's just nodding their head and being there with them, Mm -hmm. showing the appropriate emotions because you're feeling those emotions that I sat through a consult with an attorney where, you know, I finally got him to ask this question to a woman. The woman broke down crying halfway through her story. And like he, you know, he might as well been an Easter Island head, <laughs> zero emotion. And like, finally I was like, Hey, how, how about we offer her a tissue or something? Like, let's, yeah. I don't know, let's reach out and show her a little bit of, of care and kindness. So you do have to be, you know, I don't know how to tell someone to be aware or present, but to being aware or present is what they need to be during that. Like, don't look at your phone. Don't look at your watch. Mm-hmm. Preferably, don't don't wear a wristwatch. Don't have your phone in there with you. Yeah. Don't have things that are distracting you. Don't be looking around. Mm-hmm. You're engaged. You're there. Yeah. I'm half Japanese, and there's this, this thing I learned it's in Japanese. It's called aizuchi, which is just just a, a phrase for any kind of word that's like aha, uh-huh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so aha, uh-huh. and then you know it's a kind of like you're not really saying anything, but you're letting the other person know that you're talking. So that's that's the approach that I take in a sales situation like that, where I'm just like mm-hmm, uh-huh, and I can see it actually in the podcast when I audio edit. I'm just every you know ten seconds. 14 seconds, I, I, you see a little bump on my side where I say, mm-hmm, uh-huh, totally, something like that. That's that's how I do it. So, okay, so they're telling the story five to seven minutes, and then? I'm actually going to back up one step okay. uh, that I forgot to co- cover something at the, at the very beginning, which is establishing rapport when we come in. You know, when I shake their hand, tell them who I am, tell them how difficult I know it was that for them to come in today, that there are hundreds of books building about rapport that are they're trying to give you techniques to get people to like you. And the easiest way to get people to like you is for you to like them, that 
it was certainly like if someone came in and sat down and talked to me and I legitimately didn't like them, it was certainly very difficult for me to get them to retain because we were not, the number of people who I legitimately don't like is, is pretty small. <laughs> like I, 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 I generally like everybody, uh -huh. but occasionally we, we all meet people where they just, they just rub you the wrong way, but you should be able to get along with 95% of the people or more like 97, 98% of the people that walk into your office, mm -hmm. you should be able to look at them and, and you may not want them to be your fishing buddy and to come over to your house for drinks, but you should at least be able to look at them and go, I like this person. Mm -hmm. I, I care about this person. I want what's best for them. Mm -hmm. And that if you can have that level of concern and like for them, if you can establish in your own mind why you like them, mm -hmm. you don't have to come out and tell them verbally, hey, this is why I like you. Yeah. They'll have that sense. They'll have that feeling that, that you have care and compassion and, and that you do like them mm -hmm. and that you want what's best for them. And that automatically, large numbers of the time, establishes that rapport that you that you need with the person who's coming into your office. Mm -hmm. now, I always go back to Dale Carnegie, who's, who says that you need to take a genuine interest in the person that you're speaking to. So I can see how that would play in here where they're telling a story. And if you're taking a genuine interest and you're really, as you say, present and you're leaning forward and you're listening to their story, not consciously leaning forward as a rapport trick, but because you want to hear what happens next in the story. Do you think that's a, a useful tip for people? Or Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that uh, Dale Carnegie's books are, are great on that. But that, you know, being that type of person who is interested, if someone comes into your office and you're just checked out, the techniques aren't going to change the fact that the person can tell you're checked out. Mm -hmm. But being aware of those certainly does help. Mm -hmm. So keep on going now. Yep. So we've asked them what happened that brought them here today. Mm -hmm. Once they finish telling me their story about how they ended up at our office, I ask, how are you dealing with your debt currently? And again, that creates another emotional response and that they tell me everything they're doing to try and overcome whatever it is they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. If they're borrowing money from family, if they're selling assets, if they're going into their 401k for money, like what, what is it that they're doing to try and get by? And, and it gives me more insight into their situation, but it also creates a greater level of emotional investment on their part. Mm-hmm which leads into the next question right along the same line does this exact same thing how is the debt affecting you mm -hmm. like you've told me your story you're telling me what you're doing with it how are you being affected mm -hmm. you know the stories of staying up late at night losing sleep they're stressed out they're anxious at work they can't focus whatever however it is they're dealing with it they'll you know they'll, they'll tell you that portion of the story mm -hmm. now let me just pause right here because Normally I take notes, but I have a new microphone and it's very sensitive. So I don't want to be pounding on the keyboard. Mm -hmm. So I can't remember if at any point prior to this, you've asked people to explain, you know, what all their debts are and their income and stuff like that. Or have, have, is that not even important? Um, we haven't gotten to that part yet. Like we're, we're 10 minutes into that. Okay. All right. So that's later. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Kind of when you ask them what happened, sometimes they'll they'll give you 
then my truck broke down and now I'm another $5,000 in debt, or I got evicted from an apartment and that's $2,000, or I got my, my car was repoed and they sold it at auction and there's a, you know, an $8,000 deficit that I'm, that I owe on that. Like sometimes they'll, they'll throw out some of the details, but I certainly haven't gotten to anything that would involve what a lawyer needs to know to be able to file a bankruptcy. Okay. So this is really almost the anti-lawyer sales script. This is this is almost the or the George Costanza sales script. <laughs> I am going to ask those questions because I mean we do legitimately need to know. Hey, do you qualify for a Chapter Seven? Sure. But we'll get to that in three more sections. Okay. So keep on going. Okay. Next, I explain the different types of bankruptcy to them and the different qualifications that are involved. So first, I explain Chapter Thirteen bankruptcy because I can't help them with the Chapter. 13 bankruptcy, so I don't want them to do that. Mm -hmm. Although many attorneys are more than happy to have their client file a chapter 13, I walk through the, hey, these, this is a payment plan to the state, three to five years, blah, 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 all about chapter 13. And then I say, we're generally trying to avoid chapter 13 because you are making a payment plan to the state for three to five years. Most people don't want that. They want a clean start, which is chapter seven bankruptcy. I then explain chapter seven bankruptcy, how it works, that the state wants to take your assets so that they can sell those assets. And then they keep up 10% of that sale and then they give the rest of it to their debtors. Mm-hmm. And then I say the benefit of using an attorney, and this is the next section after I've described the different types of bankruptcy is how we help is we protect your assets from the state and that we make sure this process goes smoothly. This is the first time where I'm trying to plant a seed for them Mm -hmm. so that they know they don't want to file pro se. Mm -hmm. So I'm giving them the benefits of, of what an attorney is going to do for them that they can't do for themselves and that they don't want to do it themselves and that, that they're largely not qualified. I'll tell them that 30% of the people who try to do this on their own end up getting denied. There's another portion of those people when they do file the bankruptcy on their own, the trustee is going to end up seizing a portion of their assets because they weren't aware of how to protect their estate from the from the state from being seized. Mm-hmm. So that's what I explained there. Okay. So that's the benefit of using an attorney. Next up is the part that all the lawyers have have been fidgeting in their chairs about. We're actually going to ask them legal questions. Okay. So now I'm going to ask them about their income. How much do you make? Where do you get it from? How do you receive it? How often do you get paid? How much are you making? Making sure that, you know, that they have some sort of income. They don't always. Next up, I ask them about their assets. So we're, I'm going through the assets and let first I start, do you own a home? Okay. In Arizona, there's $150,000 exemption on um, on a home. Homestead? No. Yeah, it's a homestead exemption, but uh, on equity in your home. I don't know why my brain sees that. Yeah. That you're, you're allowed to have $150,000 in equity in your home. Do you own your home? Yes. What's it worth? How much do you owe on it? This is where I start walking them through everything they own and what it's worth, what the state allows them to have, and if the attorney is going to need to talk to them about how to best structure that or if they need to divest themselves of assets. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we go through their asset talks. So, you know, you're a non-attorney doing an intake or a meeting with them. Mm -hmm. Now, I can see how you wouldn't, you know, if it's clear that they need to do a chapter 13, I would imagine that you would want to finish taking in all this information so you could give it to the attorney to follow up with, you wouldn't just say, I can't talk to you anymore. 
just wanted to make sure that that's how you're handling it or you tell me how you handle that. It would, it would depend on the attorney that I was working with. Some of them, they wanted to, to do that portion themselves because some of the questions are different. Certainly how the assets are handled are different. I usually have an intake form. I would go through the intake form, make sure that all their income assets and debts were included on there that he would need. Mm -hmm. And then I would either reschedule them to meet with the attorney or go get the attorney for chapter 13. Mm -hmm. The next and the final thing is, again, I'm doing this in a specific order. They're happy to talk about their income. Emotionally, they want to protect their assets that like whatever, whatever stuff it is you own, you want to keep your stuff. Mm-hmm. Even, even if your stuff isn't worth that much, it's at least it's yours. And then finally, you know, we talk about their debts. What do you owe? Who do you owe it to? How long has it been delinquent? going through all the questions on that, trying to get an accurate picture there, but also trying to get as much there. They're trying to not think about this debt as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And we've got to pull all this debt out into the sunshine, put a light on it and go, all right, here it is. Mm -hmm. You're making this much money. You have this level of debt. The likelihood that you're going to get right side up on this is pretty much nil. If that's the case, mm-hmm. certainly done this with people where I talked to them. We went through the debts and it was like, have you called anybody about like, Hey, let's restructure this a little bit. And and I think you can, at that point we would offer not necessarily debt settlement, but like, how about, you know, how about you retain us for $500 and we'll have the attorney make some phone calls to these debtors and see if we can restructure this so that you can actually make it through without filing a bankruptcy because you've got decent income. You may qualify for a chapter seven, but if we can just negotiate some of these onerous terms that you're under, maybe we can create a better situation for you without a bankruptcy. Okay. Uh, I'm a little confused. I understand the concept of what you're saying. I don't necessarily understand mm-hmm. the exact scenario. That Can you give me an example of a scenario? An example of a scenario is, so a lot of times when a debt defaults, they demand full payment and they, they don't want to accept anything less than full payment. So, hey, you owe us $2,000 right now. They have, they have $12,000 in debt. They've got a bunch of other debts that they're managing fairly well, but this $2,000 debt is about to kick a garnishment in and they're going to lose 25% of their paycheck. And if they lose 25% of their paycheck, now that's going to create a snowball on all their other debts. Mm-hmm. So, hey, why don't, why don't we pay the attorney 250 bucks? He'll call this person. We'll try to renegotiate that debt for you so that we can get you on a payment plan that instead of this default going through and, and putting you into a financial tailspin, mm-hmm. we'll get this whole thing worked out and you don't have to to file a bankruptcy. If on the other hand, they say no, the attorney has the ultimate hammer of going, hey, you're going to get $0 because as soon as I file, hang up this phone, I'm going to file a chapter seven for this person. Mm -hmm. And that not all, not, not all companies see the light of that, but usually they're like, oh, you're an actual like chapter seven bankruptcy attorney. This is all you do. So this is, Mm -hmm. this is what's going to happen next. We're going to get $0. (laughs) So they're a little easier to negotiate with a bankruptcy attorney than, than if you called them yourself and said, Hey, can we work this out? Yeah, totally. Totally. Okay. Okay. So I've gone through their incomes, their assets and their debts. This is the part that the attorneys spend the majority of their time on. They want to know all that because they, they do need those details to find out 
Do they qualify for a Chapter 7 bankruptcy? And how am I going to structure this? Mm -hmm. At this point, so I've asked them those three questions. My next question to them is, what happens if this doesn't change? Mm-hmm. What's what's your life going to be like if you walk out of here and everything's exactly as it has been? Mm-hmm. And then after they ask, answer that question, my final question is, why now? Okay. Why is today the, the day that you finally had enough and just finally decided to do something about this? And what are some of the answers that you've gotten for that question? I, I hate to say that they're all kind of generic, but they, they do kind of blend together in that like, Oh, well, you know, my paycheck's going to get garnished. Mm-hmm. I'm getting 60 phone calls a day. I can't, I can't answer my phone anymore. Mm-hmm. I've had, you know, I've had 15 phone calls while I'm in here in this appointment of debtors collecting, trying to collect on me. They're calling me at work. They're, they're calling me at work. They're calling friends. I had someone that told me that like a debt collector tracked them down at Walmart and had them paged over the intercom at Walmart. <laughs> like hey you've got an emergency call at the front desk and they go to the front desk and it's a debt collector <laughs> they're like i can't deal with this anymore I, that's certainly not a generic one but like uh-huh. um you know most of them boil down to just the emotional pain of having the gravity of that debt weighing on them all the time mm-hmm. that there's never you know any any time that they think they're going to have a moment of happiness or joy in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, some financial hardship comes along and, and kicks them in the shin. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, if I have to guide them, it's like, well, this has been spiraling down. Do you think, do you think you're at a flatline point or do you think this is going to continue to go downhill? Mm-hmm. That may be the first time that they realize, Oh, this isn't, this isn't the bottom. There's, there's more bottom. Yeah. Uh, this can, this can get even worse. Yeah. But some people like they don't come in until they've they've been garnished or mm-hmm. they're facing a foreclosure the next day. It's like, hey, my house is going to be sold on the courthouse steps tomorrow at three. Mm-hmm. What can we do? So, well, we we better file bankruptcy today. Yeah. What's what's fascinating about what you've said is you've explained to people the general difference between a chapter seven and a chapter thirteen. But besides that, everything's been about the prospect, and mm-hmm. none of them have been about the lawyer or legalese. Like, except for that brief description of a 13 versus a 7, it's all been about the the debtor. Is that fair to say? Right. It, it is. It's it's the conversation that's already taking place in their mind. It's the concerns that they have. Mm-hmm. It's what they're worried about. It's, it's, the, it's the problems that they need addressed is the conversation we're having with them. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what is the pain that they're in and how can we get them out of it? Okay. So at some point, though, you have to present your offer, and I believe that's going to be the next step, but why don't you fill us in? It's coming right up. Okay. Uh, So the next thing I do is I do tell them at this point, they've got student loan debts, if they've got IRS debt, if they've got back child support. You know, there's, there's the, you know, if they've got a, a criminal fine that they have to pay, mm-hmm. hey, these debts are going to be yours. Chapter seven bankruptcy is not going to wipe those debts out. You're still going to be accountable for these things. You're still going to have to pay those debts. I'm sorry, there's nothing that can be done about that. Mm-hmm. Now, some people are educated enough that they'll come back and they'll say, hey, I heard in certain situations you can get student loan debt discharged. Mm-hmm. IRS debt can be discharged. Sure. And my answer to that usually is yes, 
there are certain situations in which those debts can be discharged. The likelihood that you are in one of the situations is about the same as you winning the lottery. So I would recommend you buy a lottery ticket. And if you win, that will fix it as well. But the chances of discharging this in bankruptcy court are about that slim. Okay. Like I've heard your situation. You're not completely incapacitated. You do have some level of income. Mm-hmm. The IRS, it's a little bit trickier. There's some sort of three-year rule and you have to file and there's there's some other things that I don't want to get into with them, but it's like, mm-hmm. you're not going to qualify for that. Those those things aren't going to happen. Uh-huh. And so the first thing I want them to know is, here's the bad news. Okay. The bad news is, if you're in any of these situations, you still have that. Okay. Nobody can help you with that. I'm, I'm sorry. And then I go through all the debts that we are going to be able to discharge that all of these balances are going to be at zero and that if it's appropriate to tell them that they're going to be able to keep most of their assets. And I would say most of the people that I spoke to just because of the situation we're in, it was pretty clear cut. They were going to be able to keep their assets. I wasn't going into really complicated legal scenarios with them about what they owned. It was usually pretty clear cut. You're going to be able, these debts stay, these debts go away. Mm-hmm you get to keep these assets. So I've gone from worst to best. Here's here's the terrible part. Here's a pretty good part. Here's the best part. You get to keep your stuff. Mm-hmm. So I go, if, if we're able to wipe these debts out for you, is that going to have a pretty big impact on your life? Mm-hmm. Again, putting it back on them, if you don't have to deal with this anymore, is that going to make a difference? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is yes, all right, well, we've got a winner here. If, okay. If the other hand, like talking to a girl who has, you know, seven and a half thousand dollars in student loan debt, seven and a half thousand dollars in, in IRS debt, and uh, she's $18,000 in debt total. Well, this is not going to work out for you. Mm-hmm. You have enough debt total, but we're only going to wipe out $2,000 in debt. Mm-hmm. We need to find a different solution for you. Yep. So that would be one of those situations where we get to the end and I'm like, Chapter seven is not going to be a good fit for you, but that was the minority of cases, like I said, somewhere between 15 and 25% where you go, there's just not going to be enough relief that it makes this worthwhile. Mm-hmm. At a very high level, I would explain credit to them that this actually, if you take care of your finances going here on forward, you're going to have a faster credit recovery through bankruptcy than you would with trying to deal with these debts on your own, mm-hmm. that your credit will recover quicker. Most of the people that had credit concerns, it's like your credit's probably not in a very good place right now anyway. Mm-hmm. And then I would go through what we provide. We're going to do uh, all the documentation. We're going to collate it. We're going to gather it. We're going to put it together in a format that the U.S. trustees are most comfortable seeing it in so that there's no questions from the U.S. trustee. We're going to represent you at the 341 meeting. All of the services that we would provide as an attorney. And again, these are all things that the attorney never thinks about or generally doesn't seem to think about detailing to the client what he's actually doing on his side. Like he just wants to come up with the best legal answer or the legal brief, but you need to walk them through the services that you're offering, what you're doing, how you're doing it, when it happens. But like, hey, you're, I'm going to give you a complete list of the documentation we need. You're going to gather that up. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put that in a format for the court. It generally takes me 30 days to do that. Like it, it, you walk them through, then we're going to go to a 341 meeting. You're going to take this class before I file. You take another class after I file and everything that's included so that you're detailing what it is that we are doing for them. Mm-hmm. You didn't mention the automatic stay and the fact that they'll stop getting phone calls, I presume. 
you would mention that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That once I I generally don't mention that until we get to the point where I'm actually talking about the price. And then I would include that in the benefits of what's being done then. So this first part, I'm literally just doing, here's the services that we offer. Uh I have a spreadsheet of the line items of services that, that like, Hey, here's everything we do in the hourly time that we could spend on that. Now, like not, Every bankruptcy requires all of those services, Mm -hmm. but whenever you're selling a flat fee service, it has to include all of those line items in it. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Then I would give them an option. I would say, okay, for us to provide all of those services for you, if you wanted to pay for that today by cash, debit card, money order, cashier's check, it's $1,500 for the attorney's fee. And there's a $335 court fee that's paid to the court. We collect that. We only collect the $335 by either money order or cashier's check. So the 335 is separate because we're giving that straight to the court whenever we file the paperwork. Mm-hmm. Most people, their reaction is when you tell them that, were you not here for the rest of this conversation? I'm bankrupt. <laughs> I don't have any money. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they kind of look at you like, really? Then we'd say, well, we do have another option. We have zero down bankruptcy. It's obviously zero down. It would be $2,400 instead of 1835 The total price is $2,400. There's additional work that we have to do on our side. There'll be an additional appointment with the attorney, and we do have to file additional paperwork. You can do it for 1835 and make payments to us. Or you can do it for $2,400 and we'll get you started today. Which do you prefer? We want to give them complete and total disclosure on what's happening there. Mm -hmm. And then it's up to them. And you've actually shown me the piece of paper you kind of slide it. You have like a PowerPoint slide that you print out and slide over to them. Yeah, I I give them option one, option two. On that piece of paper, it, it also shows them what their payment would be based on uh, on how often they get paid, whether they get paid weekly, mm-hmm. every two weeks, twice a month, or monthly. If when I slide that across the table to them, they pick it up and look at it, mm-hmm. I know they're interested. Mm-hmm. If I slide it across the table and they don't touch it, they're not signing up. <laughs> that's just that's just kind of the way it goes. Like yeah. whatever it was that happened in that consult that they weren't picking up what I was putting down, but I'm not going to convince them or persuade them at that point. But when I slide across the table, I asked them, it's, it's kind of divided in half. Like on the left side of the page is the paid in full price. On the right side of the page is the financing price. I asked them to sign and date which one they want. They're usually pretty clear they want the zero down they sign that and date that. I ask them to put a check mark next to the how often they get paid and what their payment will be. Yeah. And then I ask them to the right of that to date it for what their next payday is so that we can schedule their payment plan to line up with their payday so that there won't be any difficulties. The other good news is when you sign up for this payment plan, all of those payments are recorded to the credit agency as an installment plan. So it immediately starts to rebuild your credit. Mm-hmm. Then we do a pre-petition fee agreement. They're not going to do that with me. They are going to do that with the attorney. Let me just pause you there because, I mean, it seems to me from a, knowing what I do about contracts, that signing a piece of paper that has option one and option two on it and dating it is not legally binding at all, but it is a way of getting people to make a kind of a, a spiritual commitment. Is that 
Is that fair? Yeah. Once people have made that commitment internally and then they've committed that to paper, that that's not a that's not a binding document. Yeah. That doesn't commit them to anything. It isn't over by any sense of the imagination. And all right, that's it. You're done. Give them a smack on the on the butt and send them out the door and say good luck out there. Like <laughs> there's still more paperwork that we have to do to to walk them through the process. But at, at that point, my role for doing the intake is largely over. Mm-hmm. that the attorney is going to do the rest of the paperwork because he has to, one, sign the agreements with them, and then he also has to file the paperwork. So that portion would be up to him. Do the prospects ever ask you why they have to sign option one and option two and why they have to date it? Not really. Okay. Uh, again, if if we get to that point that the only reason I'm presenting the price to them mm-hmm. is because they need a chapter seven bankruptcy. Like if I get to the point where I get to the income, the assets and the debts where we've gone through those questions and chapter seven bankruptcy is not going to be a good solution for them. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm ending the consult mm-hmm. and saying, Hey, this is not going to be a good option for you. We need to explore something else. Mm-hmm. So they would never even get the paperwork slid across the table to them where I've asked the question, people do ask other questions like, well, is this only good today? What happens if I go get money for my family? What happens if I make other financial arrangements? They're still exploring options. And and, and we go through all of those that mm-hmm. to us, it really didn't matter which option they chose at the end of the day, net, net, it's about the same income for us. And it is a little bit more work to do the zero down, mm-hmm. but the income ended up being pretty much a a wash. They were fairly even. Mm -hmm. Have you ever just used this sales approach and just just by that double or tripled an attorney's practice? Yes. From what I've seen from attorneys, like a a good middle-of-the-road attorney who doesn't really have any business or sales experience, they're generally closing around 50%. And that if you ask them, they'll tell you that 50% is a good number that if they meet with 10 clients and five of them sign up, they did a good job, Mm -hmm. which to someone like you and I who come from a sales background where this is a pre-selected, pre-screened group of people that literally everybody who shows up to talk to you about bankruptcy is facing some sort of financial hardship Mm -hmm. that they don't schedule this appointment lightly. Mm -hmm. So if if you only retain 50% of the people who desperately need what you're offering, there's a problem somewhere. And I've seen people with as low as like 30% Mm -hmm. where, you know, attorney was only, I've even seen 10%, but it was like, hey man, you need a personality injection. (laughs) That's your, your your problem is like, I don't know where you lost your personality, but you misplaced it somewhere. We need to go back and find it. That, you know, if you move someone from, 30% 30% retention to 60% retention, or you move somewhere from 30 to 70, mm-hmm. you know, that makes an enormous difference in their practice. I talked to a guy who closed, he retained two out of six people. Mm-hmm. And I was like that, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't work with you. We wouldn't continue a relationship going forward. If you were, if we put six people in front of you and you only retained two. And what did he, what did he learn? He did. He did. He got better. Uh-huh. I mean, none of this is based off of, so when, when I developed this process, um, I, I didn't want this to be like personality dependent in that, Hey, you have to be, you know, a super 
extrovert who's really great around people and you're the life of the party and everybody loves you everywhere you go. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I knew that was, that was not a, that was not a sales strategy that I could copy and paste uh, across to other firms and have that work. So when I first started doing this, I went in as flat as possible, that I wasn't using any kind of personality. I wasn't using anything at all. It's like, I am just going to walk this through a, a process here, almost like I'm an a, automaton mm-hmm. in that I'm just saying these words, walking through the process. Mm-hmm. And it still works that like, if you have a personality and you like people, it, it will give you better. The more that you can connect with people as people, the better your response is going to be. But the process of just focusing them on their problems mm-hmm. and then walking them through the, this process in this order and that it's, it's ordered the way it is for, for a reason as well, mm-hmm. that when you get to the end, it is a foregone conclusion. Mm-hmm. Either they know they need it or I know they don't. Mm-hmm. And there is no struggle. There's no like trying to convince anybody. There's no, eh, let me go home and think about it, Yeah, which is, that's probably 90% of what attorneys get told when somebody doesn't retain them. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go home and think about it. Or they complain about the price, but it's not the price that's the problem. It's that they don't understand it and they don't understand the value that you bring. Correct. Yeah. They don't understand the difference in what it's going to make to their life. Mm-hmm. So they, they don't know that it is, that it is worth it to them. Mm-hmm. I had an attorney tell me, well, my, my clients are price sensitive. Mm-hmm. Okay. So your clients that are coming in that are bankrupt. Yes. Have you ever had a client that was upside down on a car when he came in? Yeah. All right. What's, what's the worst you've ever seen somebody upside down on a car? It's like, well, you, know, you see somebody in like some little Chevy pop top car and it's like they, the car's worth $4,000 and they owe $10,000 on it. And they, they want to reaffirm the car and not give it up in the bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so was that, was that client price sensitive? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, so let's, let's go back through this again. You've got a client who has a $4,000 car that he owns $10,000 on and you think he's a price sensitive shopper. Yeah, that's a good point. Cause, cause for sure they're not. That's, yeah. that's why they're bankrupt. They're not price sensitive shoppers. Yeah. Now, if you can give them a bankruptcy that they can afford on a paycheck payment plan, mm-hmm. that works for them. That's their mindset. That's how they work. Mm-hmm. That attorneys, and people like us who are used to dealing at the higher end, coming up with $1,500 to $2,000, you go, man, okay, I can come up $2,000, no, no problem. Sure. But to them, that's like, it's a, it's a princely sum that they, they can't get their hands on. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay, well, this has been a bit longer than my usual podcast, but it's been fantastic. And I've certainly learned a tremendous amount. Is there anything else that, you know, to take advantage of your amazing experience here? Is there anything else that, that you would stress no you know i i hope this has been been useful for them if anybody would like any help feel free to reach out to me i'm at fresh start funding mm-hmm. they can call or email here I'll, I'll be happy to talk to them about any any issues they're facing but it's you know it, it's really just boils down to that question of do you want to be a best writing author or do you want to be a best-selling author uh-huh. and it's some attorneys literally legitimately and i understand the drive they want to be a best writing author sure i get it man yeah I get it. Like uh, that's that's not what I want in life. Yeah. That if I was a little sloppy around the edges, but my life's a little happier and a little bit more affluent, I'll take that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I'd love to do is kind of re-listen to our talk together 
and write up an outline of the approach that you take with some bullets and sub bullets, mm-hmm. and then offer that as an opt-in for people to 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 download. Is that something that you'd be okay doing? Absolutely. I've already got it all written up. I can okay. I can just send it to you. Okay. Yeah, you don't even have to Great. to go back and listen. I've got an outline. When I first started, I. I literally had the outline on the desk with me, uh-huh. and it's it's been three or four months since since I've done a consult, so I've I've got it on my desk right now. But yeah, yeah after a while, it's you, you know where you're at, and you know what you're doing, and and it comes naturally. But at first, again, not being an attorney, you know, on one page I've got this outline, and the other page I have like what are the exemptions for the state that I'm uh-huh. that I'm walking through and talking to them. So yeah, awesome. What about that one page PowerPoint slide with the the options? Is that can I share that as well? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, sure. I can send that to you. Yeah. You, uh, you already sent it to me, but I'll 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 make yeah. it as a downloadable opt-in form kind of thing. All right. Well, this has been awesome. You know, a lot of people listen to the podcast while driving, and they're like, "Oh, this is cool," or whatever. You know, this is the only podcast available for bankruptcy attorneys on iTunes or whatever. So they like they kind of listen to it while driving and. But uh, if that's you, uh, what I would really encourage you to do is just listen to this podcast episode a couple times. I don't think I've ever advised that before, but Jake's hit us with a, a ton of gems and there's a lot to unpack here. So I really encourage people to listen to this episode two or three times. I'll also include a link so you can download the, the outline and some of the collateral material that, that Jake shared with me. And I would encourage you to download that and start this process. And if you do double your retain rate, send me an email or just message me on LinkedIn. And I'll have you on, on the podcast and uh, we can talk about that. That would be awesome. Okay. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, Jake. Thanks, man. This is, this is incredible. I hope everyone out there realizes the amazing material that you shared because it really is amazing. So thanks. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Okay. Okay.